Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Amen. Paul's great teaching on the practical outworking of our redemption continues. The central theme of the epistle, as we have seen, is the oneness of the body of Christ. The unity that exists in the church between all believers, whatever their cultural or ethnic origins, whatever their background, if you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you're trusting him for your salvation and no one else, then we are united in Christ. We are not divided. All one body we, one in hope and doctrine, one in charity. That's true in the invisible church, the church that only God sees. And I suggest that it should be far more evident in the visible church as well. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, Paul writes, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind, in the same judgment. Now in this passage that we've read together, Paul specifically teaches us more about that unity that already exists in the body of Christ. Let's call it organic unity. He's talked about it in verse 3, and we've seen last week that we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. As believers, we should be developing Christ-likeness in our lives. We noticed that there were Christian characteristics that should be common of every believer. Lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And as we become more Christ-like, as we Work at becoming more Christ-like because we are to endeavor to keep the bond of unity, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We're to work at that and we're to work hard at it and we're to identify uh, things in our own lives that fall short of, of these standards, these characteristics. And when we see them, we're to 
work at resisting them and, and to bring ourselves into conformity with God's word with the help of the Holy Spirit. And as we do that, surely there will be more unity and more peace among true believers. This bond of peace among those who are truly his. And so Paul moves on now to verse 4, 5 and 6. We're going to look at those tonight. We're going to see that in those three verses, having described to us how we are to cultivate peace among ourselves and live together as part of the body of Christ, then he compares this with the unity that exists within the Trinity, within the Godhead. It seems to me that in this passage, Paul uses the unity that is already existing in the Trinity to illustrate the unity that should characterize the church, Christ's body. You might ask yourself, what has the doctrine of the Trinity got to do with me here in 2023, just about? Isn't it all very theoretical? Isn't it all very theological? Why should we bother trying to understand the Trinity? Why should we teach it in our churches? Why would we be looking at it here? Well, the reason is that it's a foundational doctrine. The Savoy Declaration helps us, saying the doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and our comfortable dependence upon him. It is the foundation of our communion with God. And if we don't believe in the Trinity, if that foundation is removed, then our fellowship with God is totally destroyed. Our dependence upon him is destroyed. Our, our comfort in Christ is taken away. I'm saying here that without knowing God, you cannot be a Christian believer. And if you don't believe in the Trinity, then you can't know God and you can't be a Christian and you can't go to heaven. You can't be saved without knowing God. And God is a trinity. It's really important to us. And so Paul here in this passage uses that description of the Godhead given to us in the scriptures to illustrate the unity that exists in the church. Let's look at it briefly this evening. Let's turn first of all to verse 4. And we see the Holy Spirit there as our example of Christian unity. There's a pattern in these three verses, verse 4, 5, and 6. There's a repetition of ones. Did you notice it? There is one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all. A repetition of ones in groups of three. And the apostle emphasizes the closeness, the bond that exists in the church between two believers by linking the church and its essential unity, first of all, to the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer. He tells us, firstly, in verse 4, that there is just one body, one church, one people of God. I know that some Christians find that hard to accept. And I know that some Christians think and believe passionately that God has two distinct peoples, the Christian church and the Jews. 
But that's entirely contrary to what Paul is already teaching us in this epistle. Remember what we learned in chapter 2. The whole theme of Ephesians chapter 2 has been how the barriers between Jewish believers in Christ and non-Jewish believers in Christ has already been broken down. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, please, and look at verse 14 and verse 15, and look what it says. Ephesians chapter 3, rather. Um, No, Ephesians chapter 2, I was right the first time. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, that means both Jewish Christians, Jews who have believed in Jesus, and Gentiles who have believed and trusted in Jesus. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Remember, we looked at that. And we saw how the great difference between Jewish people and Gentile people had been abolished in Christ. Verse 15. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself, in Christ, of twain, of the two, one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. You see, there's the key, isn't it? There's only one way that you can be in heaven, and that's through the cross. You can't come any other way. This morning, uh, down in Ballymacashan, we were looking at um, Simeon in the book of Luke. And we were looking at how Simeon was able to say, Lord, now let us thy thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. What had he seen? He'd seen the Lord Jesus Christ. He was an old man in the temple. He was a man who had come to the end of his life, and all of his life he had been promised that before in the scriptures that he would see the Lord's salvation, that he would see the Messiah. He was looking forward, as all of the Old Testament prophets and all of the Old Testament believers, he was looking forward to the one who would come and suffer on the cross. And that day Simeon saw him. And even though he was aged, he was able to say, This day, Lord, let me depart in peace. I can die in peace. I have seen the salvation of the Lord. It was a gospel message, of course. So we had a challenge that even even at advanced age, it's not too late for to come to Christ and discover the Savior for yourself. But there is just one body. No one can be part of God's people without the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, that same principle applies to differences between born-again Christians and within Christianity. For every true believer is a part of this great body of Christ, even if we belong to different denominations and even if we belong to different sectors of the Christian church. What unites us to one another is that we have faith in Christ alone 
for our salvation. So there is just one body and one Holy Spirit. And that's how that common bond that we have between us is made life. Holy Spirit indwelling every single believer. The Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin. The Holy Spirit who draws us to Christ and who regenerates us and who gives us new life in Christ. And without the Holy Spirit's work, we cannot be saved. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot make a decision out of the blue someday that we're going to come to Jesus and be saved. It requires the Holy Spirit to bring conviction of sin upon us so that we can neither rest or sleep until the day that with the Holy Spirit's prompting we come to Calvary. There's one body and one spirit and one call, one great calling, one hope of your calling, says Paul, even as you are called. See, we have a mutual call to live a godly life as we saw last week, but we have the ultimate hope, the ultimate calling that one day we will spend eternity with the Lord Jesus. Paul's already mentioned this in Ephesians 1, in verse 4. He says, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. There's only one way we can be holy and without blame, and that's to be in Christ. And First Peter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Holy Spirit, firstly, is introduced as being the one who dwells in the body of Christ within believers, that one Holy Spirit without whom there is no salvation, and that one mutual calling that every true believer has. Let's look at verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Paul moves on. He talks about the Son of God, the Logos, the second person of the Trinity. Another three ones. One Lord, that's our Savior, the Lord Jesus. That's who Paul means when he talks about one Lord. More than 20 times in the book of Ephesians, Paul speaks about Jesus as being Lord. What does that mean? To call someone my Lord is to give them their true position, to recognize them. It's to acknowledge them of greater worth, isn't it? Greater value than I am. To signify obedience and, and service. Jesus is my Lord. He is my Lord by right. He is my Lord because of his divine, eternal sonship. He is my Lord because he created me. But he is my Lord because he died for me in the cross and because he keeps me safe until the day that I meet him. I'm not afraid or ashamed to confess this evening that I owe everything to Christ. Don't you? 
He's my Lord. He's my master. And I acknowledge him and I give him due reverence and I obey him. I am his servant. 1 Corinthians 7 and 23. Ye are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. We're not about men pleasers. Jesus is my Lord. I do what he says. Is he your Lord? Have you truly surrendered to the Lordship of Christ? Is he alone in charge of your life? And if he is, then you are in harmony with every other surrendered soul. We have one single Lord whom we seek to obey. And one faith. Paul is primarily speaking here of our personal faith in Christ, isn't he? He's talking about how we trust him with all of our heart. How we rest in his atoning work on the cross. But the context of these three verses demands that we understand that we are united by a common bond of Christian doctrine and belief. The fundamentals of the faith. There may be some things we disagree on. I've probably told you a few times over the past few weeks that there are things that you may not agree with things that I say, but there are things that we cannot disagree on. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. You can see the very fundamentals, the basics of the faith laid out in those four verses. Things that we cannot disagree on. The authority of the scriptures. The authentic Christ. His death and his resurrection. His perfect life. Who he is. The fact that he will one day return for us. All of that is important and vital. It's one faith. And if someone deviates from those gospel essentials, then we have to ask if they are truly Christ's. One Lord, one faith, and one baptism. I'm not going to duck this one. When I was an Elam pastor, a Baptist friend of mine used to use this as a gotcha text. He used to say to me, point out to me, and he would say, see, see, you people, you people think there's two baptisms, don't you? You think there's the baptism with water and there's the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says here very clearly that there's only one baptism. So you must be wrong. Well, I was, of course. Not afraid to admit it. But that verse wasn't there to prove it. It would be easy to counter his argument with 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. If we want to bash each other with proof texts, we could go on at it for hours. Paul's referring here to the sacrament of baptism which unites us. 
And isn't it interesting that when he talks about baptism, he puts it in the section that deals with the Lordship of Christ. He talks about the Holy Spirit, and then he talks about Jesus, and he talks about one faith and one baptism. Can you see why that is? Here's the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 26. And the catechist asked, How is it signified and sealed to you in baptism that you have part in the one sacrifice of Christ and the cross? And the answer that we give is thus, that Christ instituted this outward washing with water and joined it to his promise that I am washed with his blood and spirit from the pollution of my soul, from all my sins, just as certainly as I am washed outwardly with water, whereby commonly the filthiness of the body is taken away. See, the thing about baptism is it should unite us. It should not divide us. You wouldn't think so, mate, you on Facebook. Christians in these social media platforms, they go hammer and tongs at each other over baptism, over modes of baptism, over the subjects of baptism, over conditions for rebaptism. It's all there. They're all they, you've already mentioned the word and you'll get about fifty replies. And yet the important thing about baptism is what it symbolizes. It's important to note that Paul includes baptism in this second section relating to Christ, because as the Heidelberg tells us, that it is to remind us that we are washed with his blood and spirit from the pollution of the soul. Baptism points us to Jesus. Baptism points us away from me. Baptism points me and those who are watching the sacrament being carried out, it points us to Christ. It ought to. It ought to be preached upon at that time that it is Christ who washes away our sins in his own blood at the cross. It's a wonderful gospel illustration. And to make it about me and my decision is a travesty. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then in verse 6, Paul talks about our Father. He talks about one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Paul comes to the first person of the Godhead, to our Heavenly Father, and he continues this systematic method of demonstrating the unity of the church. He tells us that there is one God. When we say we believe in the Trinity, we don't say that we believe in three gods. Sure, we don't. We believe in three distinct persons in one God, Here's the Heidelberg again. God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. God is three in one and one in three, co-equal and co-eternal, and there only is one such divine being. The Mormons believe that 
God, Jehovah, is one of many spirit beings who each rule their own little world, but there only is one God, the creator of the universe. Universalists believe that all the religions in the world worship the same God. Here, did you listen to Prince Charles on Christmas Day? I wouldn't have listened to him, but my daughter put the, put the TV on to hear the king's speech. Wasn't it absolutely dreadful? If you haven't heard it, you should analyse it. I'm sure you can get it in word form. Ah, yes, all religion. He is the defender of all faiths. There is no doubt about that. I think the faith he believes in most is the climate change faith. But listen to it for yourself. But the universalists, they believe that all religions worship the same God. And that too is error. For there is no other religion, no other faith that understands and proclaims the biblical triune God. There is only one God. And Paul is talking here about the persons in the Godhead. And he describes how there is one God and one Father of all. He is, of course, the Father of mankind in the sense that he created us and he sustains our lives and he gives us our breath and he orders our days. But he is the true father of all believers. We have one common father. And that makes us children within the one single family of God. And it is God the Father who determines every aspect of our lives. Do you know, I spent ages on this verse 6. This phrase that talks about God being above all and through all and in you all. Trying to figure out exactly what that meant. I looked at the Greek text, I read commentaries, I analysed it. Still can't understand it. Do you know what I did at the end? I gave up. I came to the single conclusion that we don't need to analyse those terms. All that Paul is saying there is that God is in complete control of my life. And I can trust him because he's my father. Every single part, from beginning to end, he will keep me in his hand. He is above all and through all and in you all. So we have the Spirit as an example of the unity in the church, one body and one spirit, one hope of our calling. We have the Lord Jesus, who is the object of our unity in the church. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And we have one single heavenly Father who loves us and wants the best for us and cares us, cares for us and will keep us until we arrive home. Apostle is pointing us towards heaven in a sense. He's pointing us to the eternal throne of God where peace and harmony reign, where there is perfect unity, where there always has been, from everlasting to everlasting. 
the one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, working inseparably in creation, making the universe out of nothing, working inseparably in complete unity, in bringing about the atonement for our sins, working together in complete harmony, offering up Christ to satisfy divine justice in the face of our rebellion, working inseparably in all aspects of redemption, including our sanctification. There is complete unity in the Godhead. And so it should be in the true body of Christ. So Paul points us to God, the three in one and the one in three, where all true peace and unity stems from, to encourage us to practice the unity of true believers in Christ, and so to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.